when it's kind of no one in the stadium, it kind of feels like, oh, right, I'm kind of missing that edge now. But no, of course, it's can't wait for fans are back. It's yeah, all fans yeah. are back, brother. Talking uh, fans are back, Joe, are you back with us? Yeah, I've been back for the past five minutes. I'm just sitting down, let everyone talk. And Joe, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course you have, Joel. Yeah, back for the last five minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You're kind of a great host, Joel. You've just got, you just got your guests chatting away. Wow. <laughs> you go off and have a cup of coffee. Yeah. It's a plan. I, ne- I never went away, sir. I've been here all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Good work, Joel. Good evening, whoever you are, whether you're watching or listening, this is a chat about football. And I'm Joel, and I'm joined here with my co podcast on Ilford, mate. Robert, how you doing, mate? You alright? I'm all good, mate. How are you? Eh, not bad, been better. We had a few technical difficulties connecting to this, but you know what? We persevere, we, we, the show must go on. And it definitely must go on for this episode because I'm very, very, very excited, very elated to welcome two very special, esteemed guests on the podcast for today. And the first guest is someone who I honestly can describe as one of the best football journalists I have the pleasure of sort of knowing and reading their work. And I've had the pleasure of sort of just being introduced to him, knowing him over the past sort of few months. And Therese, I feel like you all are familiar with him by now. He's been to, from what I can read, over eight World Cups. He writes some, writes some fantastic articles on the Times, um, particular favourites of mine. He's even written a book about England's 50 years of hurt. I read that book and I loved it. As an England fan, it was a bit of sweet, but it was a great book to read. And his documentary on the BBC, discussing all the England managers' history, I feel like it was compelling from start to finish. So for the chance that I have to speak to him now about England and all other football endeavours, it's, it's an absolute privilege and an honour. And all I can really do is just say thank you so much. But without further ado, we've got Henry Winter on the podcast with us. How are you doing, Henry? You okay? Hi, Joel. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, no problem. Thank you for coming on. And uh, I've got someone else with me as well. And <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. I've got... <laughs> yeah. Thanks I've for got... that, Joel. That's brilliant. You're oh, else. gosh. Excellent. All right. Eight World uh... Cups, one of the best journalists in the world, and <laughs> someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. All the jokes aside, I've got uh, a person who I can describe as a lovely, lovely man and a real student of the game. He's a man who has been a former academy coach for Crystal Palace. He's a UEFA pro licensed coach, so he could work at the top level if he wanted to. And he also is a member of the English Schools Council FA. Um, I hope I've got that right, but we'll correct that at some point. But without further ado, my uh, former teacher and great man overall, Stuart Bowe from How are you doing, sir? You okay? Living the dream. Thank you, John. Hope you're well. <laughs> no, not bad. Not bad. To us. We, again, the intro sort of took a bit out of me but we're getting there so <laughs> yeah I think uh, we've, we've done all of the major hiccups right? and I feel like before we get to the main episode I've just got to go through a bit, of, a bit of admin this is a chat about football podcast everyone and this episode will be about goalkeepers but before you guys listen to the main bulk of the episode I've got to do the admin uh, if you guys love what you listen to today please listen to us on Spotify Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at ACAF underscore podcast. We are planning to be on YouTube in the next week. And so stay tuned to that. We'll be making an announcement soon enough. But without further ado, guys, this is the main episode. And this is, again, a chat about goalkeepers. But since I've got Henry with me right now, Henry, I wanted to ask you, um, how have you sort of found football since the lockdown? And do you reckon it's been hard for um, a lot of players, particularly goalkeepers, to refine their form after the break? 
I think so. I mean, I mean, some goalkeepers uh, prefer it when there aren't sort of so many fans sort of behind them, sort of giving their grief, grief home fans as well as uh, away fans. Uh, I just think that you know, for, for the professionals out there, you know, they're, they're human beings. They've got maybe issues off the pitch. They've got concerns, but they're professional. They want to focus. They want uh, project restart to to, to complete uh, for you know for sporting reasons, for financial reasons. But I think it's. I mean, having spoken to a few players, they do find it difficult going out there without the supporters because you know they're all football fans themselves. They might have an emotional affiliation to a club. I mean, to take a player like Jack Grealish at Aston Villa. I mean, he thrives off the support of the whole end because he's got so many friends and relatives who who stay or sit on the in the whole end and he, he himself you know almost all grew up there uh, but also he's the type of individual who thrives off the abuse of opposing fans as well so you know he loves all that he's just one of those characters I mean you see how he plays how he runs uh, you know how he is um, so I think it has been pretty difficult but you know there, there's flip sides to it I mean I have to say that you know you've got a distinguished teacher and the on the on the podcast and my certainly my uh, my knowledge of the English language has certainly been uh, expanded by listening to some of the players choice uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> used of uh, vocabulary but also interesting things again sort of like teaching element is listening to Mikhail Arteta because we did, we very rarely get to hear the sort of the, the, the coaches all. and maybe they feel a little bit more liberated because it's playing close doors but you I mean Mikel Arteta I mean I think he speaks for five or six languages and certainly he was talking in uh, French Spanish and Portuguese to his Arsenal players and I think for coaches I think what we've seen partly with us or the drinks break but partly because they can get their messages out to the far side of the field as well as to the near side of the field because there's no noise in the ground I mean it's it's a, I occasionally take one earphone out when I'm listening to the radio commentary um, because the radio commentary still buzz in some artificial crowd noise because it's it's what the sort of you know, it's kind of what we grew up with. It's what the listener wants. So obviously on television, it's what the viewer wants. But actually, if you listen to it in the ground, it is you, you can hear everything. You can hear the stewards applauding, but you can particularly hear the coaches and how they're getting their messages out. So it's been a different experience, but. The most important thing is get fans back in when it's safe because it is genuinely soulless without fans and the players will tell you that, let alone a journalist like me sitting in an empty press box. I guess as well, it's, um, it's kind of like gives you a bit of a raw and uncut view of football that you, you're never going to get again. I mean, for you as well, was there any, you've obviously said about Mikko Arteta, but was there any other standouts that you thought, oh, like, I didn't expect them to be like as influential as that on or influential to other team? Do you know, I particularly noticed watching Manchester United with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. It's and not so much that he's because he's not a particularly sort of emotive or particularly mm. vocal individual on the on the touchline. He leaves it to to I'm um, feeling to an extent to and to um, and to Michael character go down and get their messages over, and they're not particularly yeah. demonstrative people. What I've noticed with Solskjaer is that he he often goes back into to the stands, goes and sit. I mean, it was noticeable at uh, at Leicester the other day. He went about sort of ten rows back and took a sort of slightly sort of broader view of of the pitch, and then came down at certain moments, particularly after the goals, to calm everything down, to organise everything. And I actually thought I've, I've been looking at Solskjaer in a slightly different way. Um, just in terms of he seems to be growing into I, mean, I think he's a terrific manager he's completely right for Manchester United in terms of the emotional connection the identity exactly what they need he understands the club clearly 
but I thought he's he's kind of grown into the role, or maybe I'm just looking watching him more. Um, just the way he sort of steps back from it, has a look that you know the sort of you know the tactical side, the chess side, and then drops down. I mean, Joe with his sort of pro license would, would would understand that more about the needs sometimes for a coach or a manager to step back rather than be in the sort of the, the, the trenches of the dugout sort of emotionally engaged with the fans. So it's I guess it's a balance. Mm. And I think as well, especially for someone like Solskjaer, I mean, maybe he needed to take a step back. I mean, before Bruno Fernandes, especially United weren't exactly on the best of slopes. Um, and there's no obviously doubt, especially the influence that Bruno Fernandes has had on the team. But maybe even metaphorically, he literally did take a step back and kind of analysed his team him and the, as a whole without exactly like you said, without the emotional connection and saw, OK, what you can do for the team and as a team. And I mean, clearly after the um, Project Restart has been a blessing for him because you've seen how well he's done. And you like to think that'll be him pushing on now as well. This will be obviously form he can continue. And I mean, with, with the core of the team, he's definitely getting there with a few additions. It definitely can be that. But of course, it remains to be seen if he can obviously re- have that form after, um, of course. It's a completely different mood at the club now. You get mm. into the well when you can go down to the training ground or you pe- speak to people at the club. There's a smile back on the face. I mean, you know, the people at the training ground who are so important to, to, yeah. to any club uh, and to a club like Manchester United, where you've got a lot of players who've gone grown up through the academy. They know the people who've sort of taken them, you know, sort of driven them to matches. To uh, you know, just looked after them. The sort of kit people, the ladies in the canteen, the lady on reception. You know, social walk back in there, and after sort of Mourinho and Van Gaal and Moyes, who you know, good in their own rights, obviously exceptional Champions League winners in, in you know the last two, but. It kind of lost a bit of its warmth and a bit of its sort of emotional, just the sort of, the, you know, the family element, to, to, particularly at Carrington, where Solskjaer turned up and he bought in, he just bought some oh, conflicts back from Norway, just little things like that, so that emotional connection. Because, you know, we can talk <coughs> about money, ball and stats and analytics and all that, but ultimately it's about people's skills. And I think Solskjaer has shown that in a quite an undemonstrative way, the way he sort of talked to people. And he's got an individual, I know Carrick well, I've just, I wrote a book with him, I helped him write a book. And he's got those individual skills as, as well. But but don't underestimate Solskjaer. I mean, anyone who came over to this country at, at an early age, who went through the injuries that he went through, who went through sort of certain doubts in his career, you know, these individuals who get to the top of their career, they're not soft touches. So Cold, just because yeah. he's, you know, the baby face assassin, he's still an assassin as well as having the sort of baby face and the smile. So I think people have been slightly patronising towards Solskjaer in terms of his ability to, to manage. Partly they've looked at what happened at Cardiff. But you've mm. also got to look at individuals who are great fits for clubs. Mm. And Solskjaer is a great fit for Manchester United. But he won't be... You know, pushed around. You know, he wanted Bruno Fernandez. You know, he want he wants Jaden Sancho to come in. I'm so sure Sancho will because Sancho's got a lot of connections with Manchester United players, Marcus Rashford in particular. So, but he can see. I mean, Jaden Sancho makes sense to come into Manchester United. Obviously, he still needs to address the defence. But I really like what Solskjaer's doing. And I was, I was, you know, I was pleased that you know he had a successful end to the season. Cup apart. No. I think also, Henry, you make a really good point with regards to. The family, you know, you've mentioned Mourinho, for example, and they're almost machine-like. They come in, they do the job, they obviously get success for, for very different degrees. I mean, you could argue when he was at United in the Europa League and obviously, you know, the League Cup. Um, but you look at someone like Parker last night was talking about, I know he's talking about his own family, but he was obviously talking about the family. You look at Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool and has really sort of, over the last four or five years, 
generated that real family feel. Yeah. And I almost think that that is, it's how you make people feel. It's people feeling valued within their role, whether they are somebody like a Paul Pogba or the lady who, you know, makes the tea or the guy who sweeps the floor. It's a family feel and everyone feels valued. Everyone has their part within the club. And I think that only then starts to permeate throughout the club to get that level of success. True, it's a really important point that. And I wonder whether it's become even more pertinent because everyone's been through lockdown because people have been spending time with their mm. own family. I, mean, I talked to Scott during, during lockdown. I said, how are you? He said, mate, my hands are absolutely knackered because I've been standing in a goal in the garden with 14, <laughs> For, uh, for about sort of three months. Yeah. I think a lot of people have sort of thought about, obviously, their relationships with their kids. I mean, Mark Noble was very interesting on, on it. He said, I've, I've never been able to really spend time with my kids because I've been, you know, football is all-consuming. Obviously, he loves West Ham emotionally as well as professionally. But actually being able to spend time with, with his kids, you know, I think he called it a gift. And that's sort of very rare. And he said, you know, he would normally come back from training pre-lockdown and he said, well, can we have a kickabout in the garden? You know, this opportunity to spend time with your dad and obviously, you know, to have a kickabout with a well-known footballer as well. Yeah. Uh, and he would say, well, yeah, I can have a kickabout for sort of, you know, 10, 15 minutes, but I've got to watch out for my hamstrings. I've got a big game at the weekend. So I think a lot of managers have just had this sort of emotional reconnection with their with their families which i think has obviously been wonderful for them on a on a personal level but i think also we might see it sort of coming forward those people skills slightly coming out more to the uh, more, you know more to the fore as, as Stuart's saying honestly guys like it's, it's been way down discussion i feel like again i'm actually talk about like football during lockdown i think like it's um just this conversation just highlighted how holistic the whole um, prep like football uh, world is as well like you can't always sort of consider issues on the pitch to be like the be all, be all and end all like there's the psychological matters and the, the sort of like even the social like interactions in terms of your your, your in, within the club as well play a big part in football I think that's something yeah I probably hadn't sort of gave a lot of thought before lockdown or during lockdown as well so again um, thank you guys sort of for uh, having that discussion as well but um I want to sort of bring the topic specifically onto goalkeeping now, right? And Stu and Henry, I want to ask you guys about that question. How do you feel the standard of goalkeeping has been specifically um, after the restart? Has it been different to what it had been beforehand or do you reckon it's, it's sort of got back to how it was before? Stu, you go first. Bring your technical eye on this. Oh, dear. Um, I think that um, in terms of before the lockdown, I think that it's, it's, it's probably more or less the same. The guys are obviously still... Um, you know, from, from the Premier League's point of view, I don't believe there's been that many mistakes that have obviously cost, uh, you know, people always run the eye over. I mean, obviously, you, you, with the exception of, of, of David De Gea, probably the only sort of big name at the moment who is going through a dip in his form, in his confidence. He doesn't look happy um, when, he's, when he's playing. And, um, you know, obviously, I don't know him, but clearly there's, there's an issue with, with his performance, whether he listens to the media, takes on board what's being said about Henderson. Um, but I generally feel that the, the level of goalkeeping uh, as a whole across the Premier League um, is, has been quite sound. I mean, I look at Pope against Liverpool. I mean, if it wasn't for him, Liverpool would have, would have, would have easily, easily won that game. Um, 70% possession, I think, Liverpool had. Uh, and a number of other goalkeepers have also, you know, sort of stepped up and been, been sort of very high profile. Um, so I think it's probably more or less the same. They're still training as hard, obviously, when training could resume. Um, 
I, I think it's still more or less the same, really, if I'm honest. Sure. So just a sort of technical question for you, something that Kasper Schmeichel was, was talking about. He said that at this stage of the season, when you're playing in differing competitions, it's particularly difficult for a goalkeeper because they bring out a different ball for each competition, whether it's Nike, whether it's whoever, whether it's Mitre in the Cup or in the EFL. And it, it, it can be a bit of a, a, an issue for goalkeeper because of the flights. Is that an excuse or is that actually a legitimate concern? Um, I, do you know what? I think it's a bit of both because goalkeepers obviously get to train with the match balls. They get a selection, um, you know, in the training sessions leading up to the game. Um, so, and obviously not only leading up to the game, but in the, in the pre-match warm-up as well. There's enough balls around for them to use. So although it may actually be slightly different in terms of weight and movement, um, these guys, they're, they're training with those footballs, you know, good week in advance. So uh, as I said, probably a bit of both. A bit of gamesmanship there, I think, from, from Kasper Schmeichel. Getting these excuses in early. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. It wasn't it? It was just like, it's like, yeah, I can see your point, but also... Is it really that much like everyone's in the same position in, in that sense? Do you know, yeah. one thing with goalkeepers, though, particularly someone like Casper Schmeichel, I always listen to him because he's one of these individuals, because inevitably with a position on the pitch, they analyse. But someone like Casper Schmeichel just goes and analyses other sports. So he's, he's very into tennis. He plays a lot of tennis, but, or he certainly did so growing up. But what he did was analyse some of the serve and volley players and how he could use those skills. Because we also dismiss goalkeepers, maybe a bit daft, the Brian Glanfield goalkeepers, a different sort of culture ethos. But actually, he would analyse, Casper Schmeichel would analyse goalkeepers in terms of relating them to tennis players, and particularly serve and volley players. That speed off the line, that anticipation, the body language of the opponent who's about to take a shot. Is he faking? Is he fainting? Is he going to shoot early? Batniff and things like that. And I just, I find it really interesting listening to goalkeepers, um, particularly because when you listen to a lot of the pundits, they are either brilliant former defenders like Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher, brilliant former midfielders like Graham Sunez, or, you know, charismatic attackers like uh, Alan Shearer or Ian Wright. Don't often get many goalkeeper pundits. Whereas I listen to Cassius Michael, I think, my God, he's got so much to say. I listen to Rob Green on uh, on the BBC mm. and I think, God, it's yeah. really, really intelligent. Peter Schmeichel as well. You know, mm. from possibly less analytical than his son Casper. But again, very, very interesting because of their perspective on the, uh, the, the, the game. And it'd be interesting, maybe one of the reasons there has been a lot of criticism of goalkeepers is that there aren't necessarily pundits in the studio who actually have understand the flight of a ball, understand the pressure that a goalkeeper is, is, is on. Whereas if a, a right back for, you know, for if Aaron Wambasaka's had a poor game for Manchester United, Gary Neville will be able to give a very yeah. considered appraisal and maybe support him. Mm. Um, whereas David De Gea maybe not, not necessarily has had that in terms of supporters within the, within the TV studios. I think as well, uh, you make an interesting point because there's definitely a there's definitely a gap there because, for example, with what happened last night with Brentford and Fulham, of course it was a mistake, but it'll be nice to have a keeper maybe also explain it. Yeah. He can have his view and kind of what the thought process is behind something like that, why why he thought he could do it, what has like the keeper done it before, like and it's actually worked well. It's don't get me wrong, as much as obviously it's great to have all these world class pundits on. It, for example, I, I don't know who was the pundit um, for the game last night, but if you have like a striker, for example, say their views on it, they're going to give a completely different view, of course, to what a goal pundit. So there's definitely a gap there. 
Yeah, it was, it was interesting. That one of the favourite priests, one of the former goalkeepers, was actually saying on Twitter this morning that maybe there was an issue with the wall. Should he have more than one one person in the wall? It was a bit of a sort of fly wall. Um, and actually, actually, there was an element of sympathy for 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 David Ware. But also, look, for every mistake, someone's got to capitalise on it. Someone's got to explore mm, the mistake. Definitely. And actually, plan it and scott parker i mean you know let's give you know we're talking about sort of young managers earlier let's give credit to to scott parker because it was clearly something that he and his coaching staff had worked on and you could see the way the coaching staff had celebrated there was an almost <laughs> ooh, you know, that yeah. One, yeah that was that was one we prepared earlier yeah <laughs> yeah and again from the from that that goalkeeping point of view you've got the guy who he's as i said earlier you know he, he obviously sets himself up to come for the cross despite the fact that there's, you know, 10, 12, 14 people in the penalty area, just from that point of view, if he knows that that's his, going to be his starting position, then he needs a bigger wall and he needs to shift that wall over to the right-hand side in order to stop that shot coming in. Because it was, it was, I mean, let's be fair, it was, it, was well, it was well whipped in, it was put behind the wall, uh, around the wall, sorry, um, and then obviously, you know, within the near post. So it's those little things that he's probably done a hundred times before that he just didn't do at that moment, just didn't check the wall, just didn't get it over far enough and sadly was exposed. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, we know that that was quite a costly error. Just as a journalist there watching it, I was sort of had half an eye on what Brian was doing, but also on the sort of the mayhem that Mitrovic was causing at the far post because he, he was it sort of, you know, he's like the way, the, the way he plays. He, he'd just been booked in the mm. sort of you know, the fallout from the, you know, the free kick because um, he was just wanting to sort of, you know, take on to a Brentford defenders. And I just wonder if there was any element that you had this big Serbian threshing machine sort of running around at the far post and some of the Brentford attention, whether the keeper or whether the defenders, was on him. And mm. whether that was deliberate or whether that was just the way that uh, Mitrovic sort of <laughs> applies his trade. But uh, so, I mean, I was looking over on the right side and then suddenly, oh my God, he scored. I think you, you make an interesting point there because obviously... He's just been he's just been bought on, and personally, when I was watching the game, you're thinking, well, why didn't he come on sooner? I mean, obviously, given the time, it was a risky move to put him on. I think he's in the 88th minute or around then, um, and maybe that was a tactical along because making him seem like he is obviously the star man, he's the go-to. Everything's now when he's on the pitch is going to go through him. Obviously, he got the yellow card from Mitrovic being Mitrovic, and I think. I think you're right. Maybe that was the whole plan to make he, make him the centre of attention and kind of and it had that lapse of concentration because everyone's thinking right, Mitrovic, like making sure you're watching him, making sure you're doing what you're doing with him. Of course, if that was the case and it's perfectly planned because of course it worked in their favour. Yeah. Um, but there must have been some sort of talk from Scott saying, yeah, make sure you're getting all the attention. Basically, just go out there and be yourself. Basically. Yeah. Be a nuisance, probably. <laughs> exactly. Just just make yourself known. I mean, it's not hard for him to do, yeah. but yeah, just, just be a like, nuisance. Like Henry mentions, though, um, for example, uh, Scott Parker's got to sort of be praised for his tactical savvy in the sense of sort of looking at um, uh, David Ray's position and the normality of him being on the, six yard, at the edge of a six-yard box and sort of exploiting that with Joe Bryant's um, amazing free kick. The, the question I have to ask uh, both Stuart and Henry, right, is that, in most contexts, right, David Rea would, uh, if he if the cross normally goes in and he catches it, being on that starting position, he gets applauded for his uh, aggressive positioning in the sense of claiming the cross to dominate your 18-yard box, especially in a big final like that. We all know by this sort of time uh, in our lives that 
catching the ball takes the pressure off the goalkeeper, uh, off the defence and the, the back line and so on and so forth. So do you reckon he's just played the odds? Like, just said, you know what, normally I'm, I'm going to just be on that six-yard line and I am going to catch all the balls. I am going to be in a great great opposition to to uh, deal with the shot and whatever comes of anything, you, you just don't bank on Joe Bryan doing that, do you? So do you reckon it's just that? Like, Do you reckon David Rea has got a bit more grief than he should have done? Or Ultimately, it went in. Ultimately, the goalkeeper's job is to stop the ball going in and he's going to get grief because it looks... It looks like, well, this doesn't look like an error. It is an error. Now, whether you obviously look at your starting position to start with or alternatively you look at how he sets the wall up, um, there was a gap which obviously was exploited. Now, if he's a pace over to his right-hand side or two paces over to his right-hand side, he may get there. Uh, It was a long way out, so he should be able to make up the distance um, and make up the ground. Um, Or if he has one extra person or shifts the wall over to the right-hand side. You've got uh, enough people in the penalty area to deal with the cross. If it misses the wall and comes in, or he comes and gets it if the wall is over to the right-hand side a little bit further, um, which obviously it blocks the shot. Um, So, yeah, of course, if it comes into the box, he comes out and gets it, takes it. There's no problem, is there? But unfortunately, it wasn't like that. It didn't play out like that. There was a huge gap against uh, against the wall, and he was obviously too far over uh, because the guy had a shot. So, ultimately, it's an error, unfortunately. Yeah, I think in judging him, you, you can't see the incident completely in isolation because it wasn't him that gave away the free kick. It, you know, maybe someone could have actually sort of realised maybe what sort of Joe Bryan would do. And also, he's positioning and particularly taking the uh, crosses under pressure in the first game that he played to, at, at Griffin Park, where he yeah. was, who, who were tall, strong, a lot of their players quite physical, they get they get good crosses in. He was coming out and claiming so many of those. I mean I don't know who got man of the match in in the second leg, but I would have thought he would have been you know he would have been up there. Um, mm. I thought he was he was he was excellent. So uh, you know a lot of respect to uh, to, to him and, and obviously Rodak coming back to, um, to to Craven Cottage. I thought he was excellent there. I actually thought the goalkeeping in the uh, in the um, in, in the playoffs has been pretty decent on the whole, and there will be absolutely focus on him. But just to sort of say, you know, he's cost them 160 million pounds. I think he's mm. a little bit harsh given yeah. how he's performed during the season, how he performed during the, the semi final, how he performed during the uh, you know for, for a fair amount of the final. Look, it's a brutal world. It's a very lonely world for goalkeepers when they make a mistake like that. But you know. Maybe I'm going a bit soft, but I, I do think he was completely responsible for, for Brentford not getting to the Premier League. No, 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 I agree. Yeah. And I'm probably even a little bit too uh, too harsh saying it was a costly mistake. But obviously, you know, he's a good goalkeeper, let's be fair. I mean, he's done extremely well. As you said, he's performed brilliantly. And, and one of the main reasons why Brentford actually managed to get where they did, because he's, you know, he's, been, he's been absolutely solid. Um, but... Yeah, as I say, I think maybe you'll look a bit... And, and you have to, as you've already identified, you have to credit Fulham. They've looked at... You know, they've obviously done their research, they've done their homework, and, uh, you know, they've, they've obviously managed to, to capitalise on that. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think I, I, we've talked about that quite well, actually. If, uh, but, anyway, going to the next topic now, right? Um, I know that, uh, Stu, you alluded to it earlier. You mentioned um, England's sort of goalkeepers in Pope and Henderson, right? I'll just sort of have a bit of discussion about that because... Obviously, yet we would have had the Euros happening this year, and there would have been a lot of debate uh, in regards to whether Pope or Henderson should be number one. And I wanted to start with Nick Pope now. Um, he's had 15 clean sheets this season with Burnley. 
um, second only to Edison in goal um, at Manchester City. And he's performed remarkably well as well. So I thought I'd get your thoughts, um, Stu and Henry, about how um, both how you felt, how you both have felt that Nick Pope has been performing this season and his sort of stake, stake for the number one spot at England. Exceptional. I think he's done brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. And, and I, do th- I do feel that he um, you know, should be given an opportunity. Um, that's not to say anything that Pickford's done has, has been has been poor. Um, but I think we are getting to a point where we now have um, three young goalkeepers who are, uh, you know, very, very good. Obviously, you look at, like they, I mean, Burnley and, and Sheffield set their teams up to be, um, you know, sort of quite defensive and, and Sheffield United sort of play on the counter. Um, so, therefore, you know, they don't concede that many and that's why they've obviously had some joy with clean sheets. But in terms of the goalkeepers, I alluded to Pope earlier on against Liverpool. Just absolutely brilliant and I, I, I do feel that um, you know at the moment the actual quality of, uh, of England goalkeepers especially at their age you know is, is, is good for the, for the future I think also Pope's got two very good centre-halves in front of him I think me and Tomachowski in particular have had you know exceptional seasons and you look back at a lot of the sort of great teams going back to the 70s with Liverpool you go back to sort of the, you know the Arsenal under George Graham there was an understanding and almost a sort of like a, a sort of there was a sort of community between the centre-halves and the goalkeepers. It wasn't one plus two. They were very much a three. They worked together. There was communication. They almost knew exactly what the um, what each other was was going to do. And I think that's definitely the case with uh, with Nick Pope. I mean, a lot of people will will have views on, on Nick Pope and Dean Henderson um, and whether they should start. But I think it's, Southgate's pretty loyal. He enjoyed mm. what Pickford did uh, during the, the uh, during the World Cup, the, the penalty saves, the distribution, that sort of that half volleyed side wider that he's he's got, which can unleash attacks. I think they really like Pickford's personality. When he makes a mistake, he doesn't dwell on it during the game. He gets on with it. But absolutely, I think he's needed certainly in the last couple of years more pressure on him. I'm a huge fan of of, of Henderson. I was at the under 21s this time last year. And, uh, you know, he made a bad mistake against France and he came out and talked afterwards. And OK, there were only about sort of two or three journalists, but, you know, he fronted up. I like goalkeepers who, who, who front up, who's, who realise, you know, they've made a wick and they focus on it. And I think Dean Henderson has just this season for Sheffield United with Chris Wilder. I mean, Chris Wilder called him out a couple of times early in the season. Yeah. And Wilder did that because that's his personality and the way, that's the way he works with players. He challenges them just as he challenges um, himself but also Wilder's clever he knows that Henderson's got that sort of character that can actually deal with with criticism and he will respond and he'll be man of the match in the next game which is what he he, he subsequently did so uh, no I think he- I'm, I'm a huge Henderson fan I just think in terms of shot stopping and in terms of England's future he's what sort of seven eight years younger than that than Pope then I mm. think you know, I think possibly he will be the one who puts most pressure I'm sure Pope will, will will play games, but there are fewer friendlies now, particularly in the time of yeah. COVID. So, how many opportunities is is Pope going to get? But look, he's uh, also what I like about him. He's taken a different route to the top. You know, he's he's worked outside of football. He's been to uni. He's had non-league. He's had difficult times, and yet, you know, what a great you know moral to the story that is. That mm. He's fighting, kept believing, and now. You know, if England's, I mean, as it stands with the Euros, England's three goalkeepers in order will probably be Pickford, Pope, Henderson. Mm. Yeah. And, and also, you know, you, you mentioned um, the, the fact that uh, he's gone a different route, Henry. You look at um, the England squad that won the World Cup. 
um, three years ago, the under-17s. Um, Curtis Anderson, who, who is now playing in the States, I believe. Uh, the second string goalkeeper, Joseph, who's obviously Actrington Stanley. And the third guy is uh, at Fleetwood Town. So, uh, again, those sort of guys who have played at that top level won World Cups. Um, and, and it's interesting about that goalkeeping position because everybody else in that squad is now, you look at Foden, you look at Brewster, who's now obviously at Swansea on loan. And uh, you mentioned Sancho earlier on, who's obviously on the verge possibly of going to United. Um, all of those players are playing at that level at Palace or whatever it might be, or at Wolves. But the three goalkeepers um, really struggled to get into the first team. I know Curtis Anderson was at Manchester City at the time, and I appreciate that would have always been a big ask, but really struggled to get into those, um, into those, into the first teams and ended up playing down at a, a lower level. Um, so that's one interesting thing. But secondly, another question that you, that, that sort of brought on by your conversation there, do you think, knowing Oli Gunnar Solskjaer like you do, do you think they will recall Henderson in terms of the problems that Bayer is having at the moment? I think they wanted to have another year of, of him playing for Sheffield United and just sort of mm. developing, becoming a bit more battle-hardened, a bit more experienced. Um, but I think the situation with David De Gea clearly needs addressing. Because yeah. you look at the best two teams in the country, they've got two of the best, probably three goalkeepers in the world, if you throw Oblak in with Allison mm. and, uh, and, and Edison. Um, yeah, um, but again, you know, the, the conversation we had about David Rare. If you actually sort of take what David De Gea has done for Manchester United over the sort of past four or five years, I mean, I think he was their Player of the Year. So I, th- I think it's very easier from sort of you know us fickle people in the in the media to to say, oh, you know, bomb him out now. I think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and other people at Manchester United will take a, a longer term perspective. Yeah. They can't afford those sort of mistakes because that would be the difference between... I mean, look how ruthless Klopp was. You know, mm. He just went in, just not happy with the goalkeeping situation and went and paid big bucks. Yeah. Um, but goalkeeper... I mean, it's quite nice in a way that goalkeepers are just going for huge sum. I mean, how much would... I mean, you know, if Kepa's worth whatever, sort of 70 million, how much is Jan Oblak worth? Um, quite, yeah, absolutely. So, I think that will be one of the... the key markets because you just look at the you know you could argue that Arsenal I mean Martinez has come in and done well with with Leno injured but you could argue that Arsenal you know which down the years those of us of a certain age have always had strong goalkeepers mm. you look at you know you look at um, David Seaman you look at you know go back to Bob Wilson I mean you know they've always had people like that so you think Arsenal could do it Spurs I find fascinating because uh, I know a lot of people like Hugo Lloris because they like him as a as a, as a person uh, you know he's won the World Cup and he's a captain and he's a he's a leader I'm still not convinced he's absolutely top grade yeah um, no Chelsea no, clearly need a, a a goalkeeper absolutely um so yeah maybe we're gonna have another separate transfer market just for goalkeepers as much as obviously loyalty is applauded and obviously like you said with De Gea with what he's done over the years do you think goalkeeper is one of them positions though where you can get caught out with your loyalty because of course keeping someone like David De Gea in he keeps it place at what point do you kind of loyalty kind of stops sort of thing it's that right we actually do need to make a change go on Stuart you answer that because that's a that's a sorry, could you do that again? Because I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just had to get up. You may hear my, my dog started barking, so I do apologise. No, that's all right. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, so there we go. But carry on. Answer that question again. I'm so sorry, Robert. Go again. No, that's all right. That's all right. So I was saying, is, do you think you've obviously as much as Loggy is great um, with someone like David Tahaya? It gets to a point where you kind of got to cut the laws here, and it's kind of you got to see it more from actual 
you've got to see it from a football point of view now. Because don't get me wrong, what the hay has done incredible. Mm. However, at what point do you think Ollie's going to say, yeah, you know what, we actually do need some. Because obviously, goalkeeper's not in a position where you can hide. In the States, you get you clearly get exposed. So at what point does that go? Yeah, again, that's a very good question. I mean, you look at Alex Ferguson, who I think may have very well been on the verge of losing the Manchester United job in, in 1990 and, and um, ended up um, bidding off Jim Layton, a goalkeeper who he'd shown great loyalty to over the years at Aberdeen and, and uh, uh, obviously the cup final against Crystal Palace, um, playing Les Seeley in the replay. Um, that was that was very brave and very public, and I don't necessarily think that that, that Jim Layton ever recovered after that. If I'm honest, um, I just think now it's funny. I think the timing is is really important, and I think that goes back to what we were saying earlier on with regards to the you know the COVID, the state of the world, with regards to that. And I think we do need to look a little bit now at well-being, and I think that is something that that's got to be taken into consideration. Um, I, I honestly think that uh, it would be the easiest thing in the world to actually call Henderson back, and that's very clear for De Gea, uh, what would be the case, what would be happening. I think, again, I think De Gea deserves, for, for everything that he's done, you know, we're talking about, let's be fair, on his day, one of the best goalkeepers in the world, has been at United for a number of years with regards to also Player of the Year as well, vast number of Spanish caps. You don't just become a bad goalkeeper overnight, like any person. You don't just become a bad footballer, yet he's having a bad situation but there may be something going on that we don't necessarily know about um and he'll certainly certainly start i personally feel certainly start the the new season um and i i do believe that you know he will he will be the number one and, and social will quite rightly stand by him i think i think it's quite interesting if you look at some of his instagram posts i think he's he's it's his girlfriend or his partner's back in madrid mm. um, and i think you know we, again coming back to the conversation we had early you cannot remove the sort of the, you know the personal Mm. elements to you know the, these these footballers are not robots you know this is not a computer game that uh, they're playing out there they're flesh and blood they've got issues at home they've got sort of distractions cool. particularly some of the foreign um players who, who come over here maybe a long way from home some of them are homesick but the majority mm. of them are tough professionals they're well played and they get on with it but uh yeah no absolutely it is uh it, it i think there might be an element of that with uh with with with, with de Gea. obviously there was a slight flirtation with, uh, with Real Madrid um, but I think from an England perspective it's because I cover England that I just think it's fantastic we've got a young goalkeeper of Henderson's quality coming through he's, mm. he's learning I think he'll develop even more with Nick Pope around him when you know England finally gets you know if, if the games are in, in Reykjavik and, and against Denmark go ahead mm. uh, in September I think he will learn even more from that and I think he's just got such a good manager in, in Wilder in terms of keeping a young player's feet on the ground and yeah. talk to some of the players there and they just say you know he's just a, you can have an absolute worldie of a game but you know if you're not right on time at training the next day if you're not giving absolutely everything in the five sides the boxes whatever he'll be at you and I think that's great and I think that will push Henderson on I think he's a actually England goalkeeping is difficult to say it's it's in a fairly good place in terms of Henderson and Pope being there we just need the number one Pickford just to get back to his to his, to his A game when he was yeah. so when he was yeah. coming through that yeah. hunger that resilience that shot stopping I still think there are he hasn't 
trained on as much as, uh, as, as I hoped he was. I mean, look, he's, he's still young in goalkeeping terms, but clearly it's good that he's got this pressure on him now. Yeah. Um, I, guess I want to ask a quick question, actually. It's a curious one. Uh, obviously, we're all aware of the situation at Chelsea where Kepa uh, seems to have sort of been dispatched or sort of disposed of on the sidelines and might sort of look to bring about an imminent move from Stamford Bridge. But with all the names that are being touted to take the number one spot at um, Chelsea, I'm curious to see whether... Um, you might feel like there might be of a bit of a like a uh, bit of a reticence to go English, to go Pope, or to go Henderson to even replace uh, Kepa um, at Stamford Bridge. Do you think do you think that's fair for me to say, or do you do you think there's a reason why that there hasn't been an English top six goalkeeper arguably since Joe Hart? I, I don't think that worry Frank Lampard. I mean, I think if you, if you've seen his culture at Chelsea, he's pushed, he's given young. English players a, a chance. Obviously, he would work with Marina Granovskaya and particularly Pelacek in terms of uh, the individual that he, he would bring in. I do think it's their most pressing position they've, they've got to address in goal. Mm. But, it, but again, I mean, Lampard, Lampard's such an intelligent individual. You know, he's, he's analysed his career. He made himself better. He made himself fitter. He made himself more technically accomplished. He analysed games. He analysed runs. He worked out how he could run off midfielders if they were slightly you know opposing midfielders if they weren't marking him properly his career has all been about advancement getting better analysis and he'll do exactly and he's already doing exactly the same in in management so he will address that whether they can get or black I mean it would just be a huge sum I mean it would be probably in excess of what maybe Sancho will go for yeah. but I think it's absolutely is, is what what they need and now Chelsea you know they've in a way they've got this money stored up after the transfer ban um and they've uh, obviously got the Ed and Hazard money. They've got a wealthy owner. I, I do think they will go big on a goalkeeper because they have to. Because what he did with Kepper at the end of the season, difficult to see if there's any way back for with yeah. with with Kepper from that. Mm. I think as well. I mean, as much as obviously you can go for the Popes, the Hendersons, with with obviously Chelsea being one of Europe's top elites, it'll be nice to have a top elite keeper in. Not to say, of course, Pope and Henderson aren't. But to have someone like Oblak in, who's done it, obviously, um, he's done it in, uh, for his country, he's done it for Atletico Madrid. Having someone like him in, you'll like to think you know exactly what you're getting. I mean, he, there's no doubt he's one of the best keepers in the world at the moment at all. And maybe that's the statement which Chelsea need to make. Um, maybe they need to make that statement signing and getting someone like Oblak because you know he's not going to, you'll like to think he won't take time to adjust. It's, it's not his first time playing top level football in the Champions League or anything like that as opposed to Henderson and Pope, you're getting a world-class keeper who's done it at every, basically, competition. But if you were him, would you necessarily leave Atletico Madrid, who are you know, doing fairly well in, in Europe? Madrid's one of the great cities in the world to live in. He'll be well-paid there. Obviously, look, obviously, money talks. It's the, it's the main driving force. He might get an extra, I don't know, so 50,000, €70,000 uh, Euros, uh, a week. Maybe Atletico Madrid would 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 fight to to keep him. I'm sure they would. So they've they've, they've sold big in recent times. I don't know. We immediately assume that everyone will just sort of jump on a plane and come to our. You know, of course, yeah. You necessarily want to come to one of the COVID hotspots of the world at the moment in terms of a media perspective for, for for a player. Would he necessarily rush here? I don't know. Chelsea can be very persuasive, and certainly they've got the money to back that up. But just this idea that he'll be rushing to Madrid Airport and jumping on the first plane to Heathrow and getting an Uber down to uh, to Cobham. It's, I think it might be a little bit more complicated than that. That's yeah. not to say he won't come because money talks, but, you know. 
Which I guess it also depends. Things. I guess it also depends on the project of Atletico Madrid as well. I mean, obviously, as of recent years, they definitely have improved. However, maybe their peak was a few seasons ago. Um, they've obviously made some very good signings or like project signings, if you will, like with Felix, for example, um, and players like that. And obviously, they've managed to keep Sal and Koke, and they've got a good core of the team. However, they haven't, since obviously they won the league, they haven't really pushed on from that. They haven't really done that right. So we're now going for the, the Champions League again, or they, as of recent years, I mean, as of the last three, four years. And I, I agree. I mean, I think, we're, I think we're very easy to kind of think that players automatically think, right, the minute they get an offer in from England, it's straight on the plane, they're going straight to England sort of thing. But maybe at this point, I think Oblak, is he 25, I think? or tw- around older than that, I reckon. I think 27, 28. I don't think but, he's that old. Um, we'll have to double check. Well, uh, I reckon he's in late 20s, but we'll double check. But I mean, this could be the perfect point in his career where he does move. But of course, again, this is assuming that he even wants to move. He could be settled in Madrid. It's not exactly a bad city to be settled in, is it? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, Stu, I thought I'd, I'd pose the question to you as well. Like, do, you, do you feel like um, Chelsea could do worse um, than getting Pope and Henderson in? Or do you reckon it has to be a goalkeeper from a, like, a, of a greater ilk from another land in that sense? Um, it, 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 again, you just look at the clubs that they've got the money. Uh, Liverpool obviously needed a, a goalkeeper a couple of seasons ago, went out and built big. Uh, I, I, was, I must be fair, I was quite surprised about the, 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 the purchase of Kepa originally, uh, especially for the money that he went for. Um, as everyone's identified, Oblak, one of the best goalkeepers around at the moment, but... I absolutely agree with Henry. I don't necessarily think that, you know, the goalkeepers that move usually, or when they, or any player really, to be fair, it's, it's, it's a, an enhancement. They're moving on. You know, Alisson was at Roma. Now, with the greatest respect to Roma, they weren't necessarily going to win the, the Italian league. They weren't going to win the Champions League. So therefore, Alisson moves to, to better that situation mm. and not necessarily anything to do with the money. Um, whereas if Oblak moves to Chelsea, is that, going to be the step up it looks if you know from sort of the layman's terms a step across as it were mm-hmm. um so I, I think that's that's a very important point um because everything is settled uh, at the moment for Oblak in Madrid and he's obviously you know highly regarded as one of the best goalkeepers in the world whether Chelsea would go for um a Henderson again possibly a little young Pope definitely um and also one goalkeeper that hasn't been mentioned, and I know that he's been plagued with injuries, the poor fella, but Heaton as well is also oh, a very good yeah. goalkeeper. Um, and when he's fit, uh, again, you know, he's, he's, he's on a par with, with Pickford and, and, uh, and, and the other guys we've mentioned. So, uh, again, I think that there's, there's, there's a number of English goalkeepers. Um, I, I, just, I just think that Chelsea, because of the nature of the club, I think they will possibly go big, as has been identified for a, a big-name goalkeeper, as opposed to somebody... Um, you know, like um, like a Henderson or, or, or somebody like that, the Pope, yeah. for example. I'd love to think they would. I think it would be fantastic to actually have, um, as, as you know, a, a, an English goalkeeper playing for the top six, you know, and, and, and Champions League regularly and getting that exposure and getting that opportunity. I think that would be fantastic. Mm-hmm.